how insane an idea is it? Whoever thought it up was just not thinking right. It was just a bad idea. 24 hours of utter insanity. Where to? Should I ask the Countess? Funny. Let's get to St. John's Park before moving day starts. There's gonna be 250,000 people in the street. Yeah. So Wyndham, for God's sake, please don't shoot anyone. Sorry, brother. I make no promises. Welcome to the first episode of Beyond Burning Gotham. My name is James Scully. These episodes are the history compendium for the preceding Burning Gotham chapters. They'll help paint the picture on what was really going on in 1835. Our characters live in New York, rapidly becoming the most important city in the Western world. In this episode, we'll focus on New York laws, infrastructure, and politics. Burning Gotham Chapter 1 begins on May 1st, 1835, Moving Day. On the 1st of May, the city of New York has the appearance of a population flying from the plague, or a town which surrendered with the condition of carrying away all their belongings. Rich and ragged furniture, carts, wagons, drays, ropes, canvas, straw packers, porters, and beer haulers, white, yellow, and black, occupy the streets from east to west, North to south. Everyone I spoke to on the subject complained of this custom as most annoying, but all assured me it was unavoidable for renters. More than one of my New York friends have bought or built houses solely to avoid this annual inconvenience. Francis Trump, 1832. So what the heck is moving day? Most of us have moved, right? And uh, we can agree. It can be annoying. Now imagine if while you were moving, every other renter in the city was moving too. At 9 a.m. on a cold, rainy May 1st, 1835, all unrenewed apartment leases in New York City simultaneously expired. What began as a custom became a New York law in 1820. I work on a lot of the Special issues you see, the life and same weekly people issues. I do a lot of them on American history. I did one on Robert Kennedy, World War One, different periods, people. Daniel Levy is a historian and longtime senior writer for what was Time, Inc. and is now Dot Dash Meredith. His recent book, Manhattan Phoenix, The Great Fire of 1835 and the Emergence of Modern New York, has been receiving well-deserved critical acclaim. My book, Manhattan Phoenix, came out earlier this year. It's on this whole quarter century or so development of New York from the 1820s up through the Civil War. I was interested in really how New York went from being a large, unruly city to a large, unruly metropolis, and how really this area, which I think is so important, because really the development and the changes that came about in New York during these years really set up what eventually became the consolidation of New York and the five boroughs in 1898. I asked Daniel about moving day. People had to renew their leases, as you do nowadays. It was usually done early in the year. If you renewed your lease, you stayed. If you didn't, you had to move. You had one day a year where this went on, which was called moving day. It was May 1st. And you would have major percentage of the city which would move in one day. 
it was insane. You have all these carts, and they have to, you know, scrounge around, try to find somebody to move you. Streets were just lined with furniture and beds and trunks full of clothes and what have you as people trying to get to the new place. It went on for decades and decades. Eighteen thirty-five, New York City was solely Manhattan Island. It's important to note how fast the population was growing. There are many factors for this increase, but a main one was the opening of the Erie Canal ten years earlier. This man-made waterway connected Lake Erie to the Hudson River and Atlantic Ocean. It shrunk time and cost for travel through the Appalachians and accelerated the expansion of the United States. It also helped make New York City the country's chief economic center. A record number of people flooded New York. In 1790, Manhattan's population was 90,000. In 1835, it was 270,000. By 1860, it grew to 900,000. New York's development struggled to keep pace with the people. New York in 1835 was a city that was really growing. Population exploded since the late 18th century. There was lots of buildings going up. There were about eight, 900 buildings that went up in 1835 alone. But you have to remember, most people don't realize that New York back in 1835 was really just Manhattan and not even all of it. There was a grid laid out in 1811. Most of it was not built at this point. The settled part of the city really went up to maybe 14th Street. Above that, you have farms, you have manor houses, you have lots of hills, it was unsettled. You have different communities, which eventually became part of New York. You have places like Harlem, you have Yorkville, you have Bloomingdale. What we think of as modern New York really didn't come about until 1898, which was the consolidation of the five boroughs, which is Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. So you have a city which is really growing a lot. You have a huge immigrant population that's coming in. You start to really see this sort of division between the rich and the poor, sort of haves and have-nots. This is Glenn Umberger. He's an architectural historian and former special projects manager for the New York Landmarks Conservancy. Glenn has given numerous tours in Lower Manhattan. A lot has been written about New York's grid which was a fantastic engineering project. Lower Manhattan was not part of the grid. The street pattern that we see today, which incidentally is actually a New York City designated landmark, was referred to as what the Dutch left behind. The grid plan both gentlemen referred to was adopted in 1811. It's today's numbered streets and avenues north of Houston. So when the Dutch come to found New Amsterdam, they have no interest in long-term colony living there. Their main goal is to get in, make money, get out as quickly as possible. So a lot of the streets that we know today, Broad Street, Stone Street, Pearl Street, were not really planned per se, they just happened that way. And then subsequent years along, those roads were never really improved to a great extent. That contributes to hard to get around, not a lot of space to maneuver. Broad Street is a natural occurring inlet and was filled in over the years. Bridge Street gets its name because there used to be a bridge that went over the canal. The Dutch actually dug out the canal for their commercial purposes, but it gets filled in later because it gets polluted. You have a lot of infrastructure that's going into these streets that 
were never really designed to be proper streets to begin with. Expansion up the island was underway, but Manhattan's natural topography made it a difficult situation. You walk down Water Street, you look at a building like Number 7 Hanover Square, for example, built early 1980s. That's actually sitting on the beach. So if you look at what the natural topography of the city is in that part of the island, that's literally beachfront property. Water Street is basically underwater. And of course, those are the lessons we learned during Superstorm Sandy. That's where your flooding is. You get up around City Hall, behind City Hall, you're into marshland, Canal Street Marsh. You get farther uptown and then you get into Granite Cliffs. You walk through Central Park and you see Manhattan schist everywhere. We also tend to forget that northern Manhattan was actually leveled when they were putting the grid through. So we lost a lot of the topography up there. But take a walk up to Washington Heights someday and you'll get a workout. Oh, I have to go up a cliff. So there's a lot of variety on the island. So what makes this so difficult? Well, not only was 19th century New York a giant construction site, in 1835, the city had no reliable source of clean drinking water. It caused epidemics and made it harder to fight fires. Just ask Gary Urbanowitz. He's an author, lecturer, and former executive director of the New York City Fire Museum. Again, when we take those tours of lower Manhattan and geographically the area we're talking about, those streets are narrow, they're windy, and when you have those wooden buildings so close together, it wasn't just the building, it wasn't just the wooden buildings, but you had thatched roofs. The chimneys were actually built of wood themselves, in some cases lined with clay so that the wood wouldn't catch fire, but still, that was still a risk. And this proximity of things like the wood to burn in those fireplaces for both heat and for cooking, you had stacks of wood all over the place. You had hay for the horses and the livestock that were common to Manhattan. So you had multiple sources of potential fire. Water is the key resource that's needed. And that resource was highly limited back then. There was access to it, but actually transporting the water, which it took a long time before those engines could actually suck the water out of those reservoirs and those wells and the river or wherever it was coming from, you still relied on those early bucket brigades. There was a lot of uncertainty about access to that resource that's needed. Now, at this time, there were two elections held each year. One was in April and the other in November. In the April 1835 elections, just weeks before our burning Gotham story begins, New Yorkers voted to build an aqueduct, bringing clean water 50 miles north from the Croton River into the city. New York really had a problem with water. They got water from wells, from the ponds, until, of course, they polluted them. They built a reservoir on 13th Street, but there was really not enough water to drink, to fight the fires, for industry, what have you. And they really wanted to get a reliable supply. And this went on for years. Of course, you have before that, you have Aaron Burr had started something called the Manhattan Company in 1798, which was to bring water to New York. They did do that, but their real aim for creating the Manhattan Company was in their charter, they were allowed to trade money. And of course, you have, they ended up becoming Chase Manhattan, which is now J.P. Morgan Trust. They really did not put enough care and effort into the water system. It didn't supply nearly enough people. The quality was low. The pressure was low. It was hard to fight fires with that. 
the city was trying to find ways to break the control of the Manhattan Company, and they finally decided we're going to build a aqueduct. They figured they would build a reservoir up about 40 miles north of New York with a long 40-mile aqueduct, bring water to New York. It was put on the poles in April of 1835. It was resoundingly accepted because people needed water because, you know, this is one reason they had so many disease and plagues and fires, what have you. They couldn't deal with what was going on. Unbeknownst to many, New York was on the brink of financial ruin. Hone and Irving, welcome. Mr. Hone, you have something to say? Thank you, Mayor Lawrence. Good men, the speculation is out of control. The amount of credit in New York is dangerous. Men are buying and selling on loan, making ledger fortunes, and unloading debt before they're forced to repay. We have local paper money of all kinds, and because Jackson killed the Second National Bank, The federal government isn't backing any of this currency. The whole economy is going to collapse. We won't be able to build this aqueduct on shit past the paper. Mr. Skimmerhorn is correct. So, how would a broke New York pay for this damn water? They sold stock to raise money. With stocks and bonds, a.k.a. the people would pay for the Croton Aqueduct. Who set this up? New York's controlling political party, the Tammany Hall Democrats. There are nativist currents in the major political formations in the 1830s, including in Tammany. Tammany Democrats targeted a new class of non-land-owning white male voters. In 1834, Democrat Cornelius Lawrence was the first elected and not appointed mayor in New York City history. To get to the bottom of this political machine, I spoke with noted Tammany historian and teacher Jeff Broxmeyer. His first novel, Electoral Capitalism, The Party System in New York's Gilded Age, is a must-read for those who love 19th century history. The emergence of mass suffrage in New York takes place really in the 1820s with the state constitution that's changed, I think, in 1822, and then there's a law in 1826 that basically removes property qualifications for the right to vote for white men, although there are still property qualifications for black men. That's a massive change, but it's not something that is clear about what is that going to look like and what are the consequences of this. Tammany, as the society and also as the Democratic Committee, didn't really fully anticipate the mass politics at all. They're not at the forefront of any of that. But they are one of the main beneficiaries in the long run, because what ends up happening is when Tammany sees that there's this popular movement of artisans who are unhappy with the way in which the emerging market economy is widening the gap between employers and workers in these workshops, particularly about the way in which workers are paid in paper money, which in the antebellum period could actually be worth way less than the face value on the bill. They're open to a lot of these grievances and a lot of these claims, and in particular, because they're practical politicians. Immigrant groups are growing, workers are agitating. They say, let's reach out and try and co-opt a lot of this energy and then bring it in and organize it in a systematic fashion at the ward level and create a kind of routinized mechanism for 
working these popular energies into the strength of the organization in a way that will produce votes regularly. The entire U.S. was going through major banking changes. President Andrew Jackson had decided to veto the Second National Bank's charter and let it expire in 1836. This meant the federal government wasn't backing any paper currency in circulation. Jackson did not like the Second Bank. It was started two decades earlier. He felt it was very elitist. It was not really a working man's sort of thing. And they felt it had too much control. He wanted to take control away from it. He vetoed the charter, which was supposed to continue the bank. He then, to strangle the bank, he actually moved the federal money held at the bank. He sort of had them sort of redistributed to state banks. And you have to remember, this is a period where you didn't have a Federal Reserve. Banks themselves could actually make their own money, paper money, that is. You know, you had Connecticut money, you have different banks had money, and it really had value based on the bank, what their holdings were. And him strangling the bank and insisting that land that the government was selling was bought with species, which is silver and gold, which has value, slow down development. It has also been speculated that Jackson killed the Second National Bank as a diversionary tactic because his New York customs collector, Samuel Swartwood, was embezzling money. The customs collector was in charge of overseeing one of the largest sources of income for the federal government. Jackson appointed Swartwood in 1829. His appointment was strongly opposed by Secretary of State and later Jackson Vice President Martin Van Buren. Jeff Broxmeyer spoke about this speculation. There's a historian, Richard John, who's written a really wonderful book about the history of the post office. And the reason why that's relevant for this conversation is because the post office becomes the main point of patronage in the new spoil system that Andrew Jackson creates in his administration in the late 1820s and early 1830s. Jackson seizes on the bank war precisely because there is such a monstrously disastrous scandal that has erupted with Samuel Swartwood at the New York Custom House. Certainly this is open for debate, right? But it could bring him down. Part of the impetus for the bank war, which surprised many in Tammany because many in Tammany were in favor of the bank at that time, right before there's a real polarization over the issue. This was in part to seize on an issue that would distract from that complete disaster as presidents do in the political system, they're first movers. And so by moving against the bank, he polarizes on an issue that's advantageous to him. He polarizes the electorate on the bank issue. Swartwood left office in 1838. By this time, Martin Van Buren was the president. He had Swartwood investigated. It was soon alleged that he embezzled almost $1.25 million, or more than $40 million in today's money. None of it was good for New York. I'll get you situated, but I need those diamonds to take the Aster for payment. Da, da, you are being impatient. I cannot take them out until we are inside. I need to eat. And I want the bath. Da, da, and the bath, Raya. Bath, 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 bath. I will scrub back so hard you bleed. Ladies, relax. I received a shipment of fresh water last night. Provisions will be delivered shortly. 
If food in New York is the same as water, we will die for the next week. Raya! What? Raya this, Raya that. We traveled three months. I'm Countess Raisa Sergeyevna Dzerzhinska Zubov. I'm a daughter of general, not peasant. Enough! Aaron, neighbors are staring at us. May we please go inside now? Well, that was Swartwood's end. It's our beginning. We'll pick up with Chapter 3 of Burning Gotham in just a few days. It'll be available beginning Sunday, December 4th, 2022. Our character Aaron Columbus, who uh, may or may not be voiced by a certain other native New Yorker, has a home by St. John's Park. What's next in his life? Well, something tells me. There's a carriage ride with a certain Miss Eliza Jumel in his near future. Godmother Eliza and her carriage. You're late! Can you take the Countesses inside? I'll try to be brief. I just loved working at the mansion and telling stories about her because she is an actual person and had all these light and shades to her of collecting this art, collecting this furniture, doing right by certain people, but not doing right by other people. And it's, she lived a full life and there's all these ebbs and flows to it. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Beyond Burning Gotham. New Burning Gotham chapters come out Sundays and Tuesdays, and these history episodes drop on Friday. Special thank you to Daniel Levy, Glenn Umberger, Gary Urbanowitz, Jeff Broxmeyer, and Carol Ward for providing detailed insights on New York in 1835. Our closing song, New Year's Eve, comes courtesy of the Hesperus Early Music Ensemble. To find out more, go to Hesperus.org. And to support this show, please go to Patreon.com slash Burning Gotham. <laughs>